couple of uh, weeks ago, there was a, a long-running uh, reality TV series that kicked off its uh, 43rd season. Um, and, and there's, I think, generally a couple seasons per year, but, but 43rd season. And I can remember watching the very first season uh, back in high school. Now, I can't say I've gotten into any of the seasons since then, uh, but I, I did watch that very first one. And, and in many ways, this reality TV show was the one that, that ushered in the area, uh, the, the era, excuse me, of reality TV here in the United States. So depending on your point of view, you can either thank this show or you can, you can despise this show, you know, either one. But uh, th that TV show is Survivor, all right? And I imagine many of us are at least vaguely familiar with, uh, with the premise, but, but if not, the show is it's basically a group of strangers, and they're sent together to a fairly uninhabitable location in the world, and, and they have to survive not only the location and the elements, but uh, survive each other, right, in order to win the prize at the end. Now, it's not a fight to the death kind of survival, right, but, but someone is voted off voted off the island, so to speak, each week. So in the season that I watched back in high school and, and in other reality shows like it that I've seen over the years, I'm always a bit intrigued to watch how people respond to one another from a sociological standpoint, okay? And, and, and here's what I mean by that. Like, I've made this observation in watching these shows. The relationships that form in that sort of survive and win scenario are, are usually very selfish in nature. So uh, it's all about what you can provide for me so that I have the best chance of winning. So, so maybe I see you as strong in some area, so I'm going to buddy up with you so that I can benefit from your strength. Or maybe I see you as weak in some area, so I'm, I'm going to buddy up to you so I can take you out whenever I need to, right? But, but whatever the case, it's about me. It's about my needs, my desires, me winning the prize. The relationships are all very transactional in nature. So if it doesn't benefit me in some way, then, then I just have no time for you, okay? So maybe you, as you've watched some of those shows, and we can admit it, we've, we've watched some reality TV, right? Those are the relationships that, that you often see. But that type of setting is not reserved only for reality TV shows. Uh, when you study the context, especially of the, of the Middle East in the first century, you see something along those lines. And what existed at that time was something called a patron-client society. Uh, maybe you remember, I've, I think I've talked about this uh, before through the years, but, but relationships in that uh, context were very transactional in nature. So nearly every person existed in, in uh, they existed as a patron in some of their relationships, and they, they existed as a client in some of their relationships. The patron of a particular relationship was someone of higher social standing, they had something of value that they would then give to a client of a lower social level. Typically, what they had to offer were things like money or food or protection or, or supplies of, of some kind. 
So as a result, those in society with more money and, and consequently more fame and more power and influence were treated very well. They were treated quite well. What they had to offer was valued by many people. And, and so they were treated in an elevated manner. Uh, in return, a client then would supply the patron with something that they valued, often honor, which was highly, highly important in that culture, or, or information or, or things like that. So, so both people, really, patrons and clients, were mostly concerned about what they personally gained from the relationship. It's just the way things were in that culture. That's how it functioned. But it doesn't mean that that was a, a good thing. And so as we continue through the book of James this morning, come to chapter 2, we're going to see that James saw the, the function of popular society in his time as something which didn't mesh with Christian living. And so right off the bat in chapter 2, he began by speaking out against the very patron-client system that dominated the culture of that day. So look with me, James chapter 2. We'll start by reading the first four verses. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So as James does throughout his letter, he just goes right for it. I mean, he says what needs to be said, what, what he needs to say. He says, brothers, show no partiality. Even though the believers at that time were immersed in a patron-client system, James says, as believers in Jesus Christ, you can't do that. You can't show partiality or favoritism, as other uh, translations of the Bible might say. What James means when he says partiality or favoritism is he means looking at a situation or, or specifically looking at a person and making a judgment call about their worth based upon what they can offer you. So James is talking about treating a person not according to their inherent worth as a divine image bearer, but according to the perceived value they bring to a situation and the perceived value that they bring to you as an individual. And before giving his reasons for making this statement, and he will go on to give reasons, he first sets the stage. He sets up a, a, a common scenario in that, in that uh, context. He, he wanted the believers to imagine that they were assembled together. And, and the word that he uses there when he says, uh, into your assembly, uh, the assumption is they're, they're having church. They're meeting together as a body of believers. So he says, imagine you're in that setting and there's two people, two strangers who come into the gathering. And one person is clearly a person of great material wealth. I mean, their outward appearance leaves no doubt about it. 
And the other person is clearly someone of little material wealth, and their outward appearance also leaves no doubt about it. He says, then the rich person, you know, imagine that they're directed to the best seat in the room, while the poor person is either made to stand, or, or, or perhaps you show a little pity on them and let them sit at your feet, you know, kind of a humiliating place to be. And, you know, as James paints this scenario, up to this point in the example, he's not said anything that would shock anyone. I mean, in that patron-client culture, what James described is exactly what you would expect to happen. That was quite common. It, It would have been shocking to the average person if things didn't unfold like he's talking about here. The rich person was always treated with special honor. The poor person was never treated with special honor. That's just how things were. And then verse 4, as as he's painting this scenario, verse 4 is where he finally makes the shocking statement. He says that when that kind of thing happens, the people are making distinctions, that they're making divisions and showing themselves to be judges with evil thoughts. He says that type of treatment of individuals is birthed by evil thoughts. I mean, we can't miss the weight of that description. I mean, if if something is evil, then by definition it is flawed when compared to purity and goodness. It's destructive in nature and, and... Because partiality, according to James, is evil, it's not just a bad idea, it's not just inadequate, it's it's not just less than ideal, but evil, then it must have no place among those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, in that context, in that culture, those are fighting words. (laughs) I mean, James is making a statement here making a bold statement. He's calling out the social system of the day. And so the question is, James, can you back that up? I mean, if you're going to turn the entire system on its head, how are you going to make that statement? On on what premise do you make that argument? And you can almost hear James say, well, glad you asked. I'll I'll give you the reasons right here. And in the next nine verses, he goes on, to support his statement with with three different reasons. Three reasons why showing partiality is evil and leads to errors in in judgment. So first, he he talks about judging by the world's standards and that it it leads us astray. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So what he's saying is when, when, when the believers judged a person based Upon their material wealth, he said, it, it leads you to improper judgments. It, 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 it blinds you to the bigger picture of, of what is, is reality. So when it came to judging the poor based upon their lack of wealth, it blinded the believers to that person's 
great richness in faith. It, it, it blinded them to that person's great inheritance of God's kingdom. You know, we, we, uh, we talked a couple weeks ago when we started the book of James about trials and, and how it's generally through trials that our faith uh, grows and matures. Well, uh, a lack of material resources in this life is a common trial that, that many in our world face. But through that trial, there is a great opportunity for faith to be strengthened and made mature. Now, now it's, not a, it's not a one-to-one correlation. Not every single person who is materially poor is also rich in faith. And just like not every single person who is materially rich is poor in faith. So it, it's, it's not always one has to be the other. But there is greater opportunity for the poor to be rich in faith. So when the believers made a poor person sit on the floor at their feet or just kind of stand in the back out of the way, they were potentially missing a great opportunity to interact with a person of great faith in God. They, they ignored the fact that this person was valuable in the sight of God, and they ignored the fact that they may have had so much to offer in the way of their faith. By, by judging based upon worldly standards, they were rejecting someone who might possess an infinitely more valuable inheritance, the eternal kingdom. I mean, Jesus said in Luke 6, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. James says, you know, when you just jump to that conclusion based on somebody's uh, uh, material wealth or lack thereof, you might be missing it. You might be missing someone who has such great faith. It, uh, it, it reminded me of a, a story that I heard about the recently uh, deceased Queen Elizabeth. And, and the story goes that one summer she was uh, on vacation at her estate in Scotland, and, and she, would, she would go there pretty much every summer. But while on vacation, she would refrain from uh, wearing her, her traditionally bright and ornate outfits, you know, that you would typically see her in, and, and she'd opt instead for just, you know, more comfortable clothing, things more muted in color, right? So even the queen needs to wear sweatpants, I guess, you know, from, from time to time. But, but that's what she would wear while on vacation. Well, one day she's out walking, and some American tourists, it's always American tourists, right? <laughs> some American tourists come upon her and make a kind of a snap judgment based upon what they see and her English accent, and, and they just assume that she's a common person from London. And so like American tourists would probably do, they say, hey, have you, do you know the queen? Have you met the queen, right? Because of course, every British person has met the queen. <laughs> Well, she quickly and, and wittingly replied, well, no, but, but this policeman here has, referring to the guard who was walking with her. <laughs> and so, and she, she was so nice to these tourists, she even offered to take a picture with them and the famous policeman <laughs> who, was, who had met the queen. I mean, again, American tourists. Um, and rumor has it she even convinced the, the tourists to take a picture with her, common person, but, but they left not knowing who they had met. I mean, can you imagine that type of a scenario? Uh, and, you know, we, we can laugh at, at a story like that, but, 
But James is essentially telling the believers, would you just, would you make that snap judgment when you look down on the poor and, and judge by those worldly standards, you're missing a chance to interact with someone who is royalty in God's kingdom, right? Those who are the heirs of his kingdom. He's saying it, it, it's, it's foolish, it's foolish. And then conversely, he says, well, when you treat the rich with such great honor just because they're rich, you, you're actually honoring the ones who are most likely to oppress you. Um, the laws and the courts in that, uh, in that culture were set up in such a way that, that the poor could rarely accuse the rich of anything. And on the contrary, the rich could accuse the poor of just about anything. And, and due to their special treatment, they would, they would often come out victorious. So, so the very judicial system, which ideally would have brought justice, was in fact being used as a system of oppression. And, and it was the rich who were doing the oppressing. So the, the worldly standards and values at that time so blinded those believers that, that they were quite mistaken in their interactions with people. Their, their, their partiality led them to that. And, and to be sure, that this is still an issue for us today, and we'll get to it a little bit later. But partiality has no place among God's people because it leads us to judge a person by the world's standards. And, and those standards are, are faulty at best and, and evil at worst, as James describes here. So that's, that's the first support that he gives to his statement, that there should be no partiality among those who have faith in Christ. Second, he, he goes on to say that, that judging with partiality stands opposed to God, stands opposed to his character and his ways. So look with me at verse 8, James chapter 2. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So, so to show partiality was to fail to live out a, a basic premise of the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. To, and, and he goes on to say then, to show partiality is to break the law, not just part of the law, but, but the whole law. Now, now, James uses the word law, uh, I think it was four times in those four verses, and he calls it the royal law. Uh, and even he'll go on in verse 12 to call it the law of liberty. So uh, if we can think back to our, our discussion of the law last week, uh, we talked about how James, his view of the law is not one in which God's people are required to live a certain way in order to gain forgiveness and gain God's favor. When James talks about the law, that's not at all what he's talking about. Um, James views the law as God revealing himself to his people and showing what is necessary for redemption from sin. This is why Jesus is the, the perfect fulfillment of that law. He, he's 
the exact image of God's glory. So he's the perfect revelation of God. And at the same time, it's through him that we find uh, redemption from sin. It's his fulfilling the law completely. So as a result, adherence to the law is not necessary for redemption. And that's often Paul's main point in his letters. But the moral truths of the law will be seen in the actions of redeemed people. And that's often James's main point as he goes through his letter. So, so it might be easy to view partiality as kind of a trivial thing, right? It's like, man, I'm not murdering someone. I'm not committing adultery. I'm just kind of favoring one person over another. But, but what James says is it's a violation of God's character and his holy law nonetheless, in uh, some examples, you can, and you see this back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the holiness, holiness code, uh, it begins by stating that God is holy and that his people are, are, are called to share in his holiness. It begins by talking about God's character. And then the chapter goes on and gives specific examples of living out God's holiness. And, and in verse 15 of that chapter, it says... You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Uh, we see also in Deuteronomy 10 that we're, we're told that God is not partial, that he takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Uh, he loves the sojourner. Um, in Acts chapter 10 that, that we read earlier this morning, where Peter has his vision and, and finally comes to understand that Jews are not elevated above Gentiles, his first words after meeting the Roman centurion and hearing his story are, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. It finally clicked for Peter. So partiality is, is opposed to God's character, and it's opposed to his ways, and, and so because of that, James would say, it has no place among God's people. It is, it is as opposed to God as adultery or as murder would be. And then, and then thirdly, the third reason he gives, and this really goes hand in hand with the second one, judging with partiality shows gospel ignorance. So he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the very message of the gospel, it, it speaks about the mercy of God shown towards sinners. When we come to God in our brokenness, we are anything but rich. Maybe we're rich in brokenness, if that's a thing, but, but that's it. We would not be rich before God. Imagine if God would withhold his mercy and save it only for those who could offer him something valuable in return, right? Imagine if it's that patron-client system. God's got mercy, which we need, and so we would have to scramble to find something that we can— and what do you offer to the God of the universe that he doesn't already have, Right? I mean, imagine if God was partial in his dealings with us. That would not be a good thing. That would 
not be good for us whatsoever. We, we are supremely blessed that God is a God who pours out his mercy upon those who come to him in faith with nothing to offer. And because God covers us in his holiness, we're then transformed from people who are guilty as lawbreakers into people who are righteous through Jesus. So, so apart from Jesus, the law is the perfect standard by which we are judged. And apart from Jesus, we have every reason to fear that judgment because our identity is that of lawbreakers. But in Jesus and through his mercy, the law is perfectly fulfilled by him. And in Jesus, the fulfilled law is written on our hearts and in it will then show itself through our actions toward God and toward one another. So it's only through God's mercy upon us that, that the law changes from being something that, that hangs over our heads to something that is then written in our hearts. And, and as a result of truly understanding the mercy shown to us through the gospel, we ought to be showing that mercy to others, refraining from judging with partiality, like James is talking about here. You know, to, to show partiality reveals that we haven't really understood the mercy that we've been shown. We haven't really been transformed by the mercy that we've been shown. And, uh, you know, that this is the point of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, where he, talk, where he talks about a man deeply in debt who was forgiven his debt by his master. And then that forgiven man went out and, and forced a fellow servant to pay back such a small debt. And, and when that fellow servant couldn't do it, the man had him thrown into prison. Uh, that action revealed the true condition of his heart. I mean, he did not understand, nor was he transformed by the mercy that he had been shown from his master. So we, we must speak, we must act as those who've been shown mercy in the face of judgment. Not doing so reveals that gospel ignorance. And, and as James would say, it's just not, it's, it's not compatible with believers in Jesus. Now, there's, there's a couple times in James's letter uh, where he what we're going to do a couple times is, is skip ahead because he'll kind of bring up a topic later on that he's already addressed or talked about and he kind of brings something back in. And so today is one of those days. We're going to skip ahead to a couple verses in chapter 4. So uh, look with me at these two verses, chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. James, again, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, so it, you can see why these verses tie in, right? Again, in these two verses, James brings up law, he brings up judgment. And he begins by stating we, we shouldn't 
speak evil about or, or slander one another. And what James has in view here isn't, isn't simply making a general false statement about someone, but, but seeking to judge them based on their adherence to the law. So if you think about it, if we are going to judge our neighbor's adherence to the law, then we're assuming that we have the ability to correctly interpret the law itself all the time, every time, right? We are, in essence, judging the law. And if we assume our ability to judge the law, then we are, in essence, judging the lawgiver, which is God himself. And, and, and so you, you can see why in the, in the sermon notes I listed pride as the description of this type of attitude and action. You know, it, and so connecting it back to chapter 2, we must not allow partiality to sneak into our lives because it only leads us to judge a person incorrectly and, and without mercy. And it'll actually lead to the prideful place of judging the law itself and, and then judging the lawgiver from whom it comes. And so what are we called to do instead? We're called to live in mercy. Live in mercy because we've been shown mercy by God and, and we ought to be showing that mercy to others as well. So, so we've been talking about that culture, that system, this patron-client system that existed. What does this practically look like in our context today? I mean, we don't live in that type of overtly patron-client society, right? So is, is partiality even a concern for us today? Well, it is, yes. <laughs> yes, it is still a concern. And, you know, when you think about I was thinking this week about uh, the American Evangelical Church. Um, uh, the American Evangelical Church today really has, honestly, a, a terrible tendency of elevating the popular and culturally successful and often materially rich people to places of prominence within our ranks. Um, they're the ones who write the books speak at the conferences, kind of give or withhold their blessing in all things church-related. Um, it happens on a nationwide scale, but, but it, it can happen within individual churches as well. Um, the, the American evangelical church struggles with the draw of fame and power and celebrity, again, on a nationwide scale, but, but, but in a local scale as well, that can happen we would do well to consider the words of James about partiality. We, we would do well to consider the rich faith found in, in pastors and church members around the world who never see success according to the world's standards. So, so that's something that, that, that uh, our branch of the church struggles with today. And I think you can see uh, not, not just with, with rich and poor. You can see American evangelicalism, we've got a history in the past of, of partiality in terms of race. It's, it, it's just happened. The Bible has been weaponized of people in our tradition to keep African Americans in slavery or, or in oppression. 
And, and that's not subscribing to a certain worldview or a specific solution to it. It's just simply acknowledging the past. It, 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 it's happened. I wish it didn't happen, but it's happened. We have to recognize ways in which believers in Jesus have been partial in the past and, and check our own hearts, right? Uh, hear the, the warning that, that James gives to us so that we might not make the same mistakes in the present time. You know, to make snap judgments based on a person's material wealth or their race or, or uh, I mean, it, it, it's all partiality. To make a snap judgment based on race is no more or less partial than to make it based on wealth. It, it's all partiality. So, so to really shine a, a revealing light on any partiality within us, I, I think a good question to ask ourselves would be this. Is there anyone in my life whom I would be ashamed to invite to church? And not just invite to church, but sit next to in church. Is there someone in my life that I would just, just and maybe ashamed is, is too strong. Maybe, maybe there's just a little hesitation within us. Like, oh man, what, what if I sat next to that person in church? Or invite, you know, what, what might happen? I, you know, I, I think... I think that that's a good question that we can ask to help shine a light on, on this attitude that, that might be present. Am I, am I partial toward people of a certain economic level or education level or morality level or, or political identity or professional identity or, or a, a certain biblical interpretation or age or, or gender or marital status? Or, I mean, it could, it could be anything. It could be anything else that we that we use to define and attribute value to a person. And James told the believers, partiality led them to make distinctions and divisions among themselves. The church of Jesus is, is to be a place where relationships between people reflect the relationship between Jesus and his bride. That, 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 that's, it's always meant to be that way. That relationship between Jesus and his bride is not defined by any kind of partiality. It, it, it's not defined by any kind of worldly value scale. And so, uh, you know, th this is why all throughout Paul's letters, he was so big on, on the area of unity of the church body, especially in terms of, of the Jew-Gentile tension that was often felt. Um, you know, honestly, it, it would have been so much easier for Paul in a lot of ways, and probably easier for many others, if he had just said, all right, Jews, you have a church over here, Gentiles, you have a church over here, let's just kind of go to our own corners and we'll, we'll do that. There would have been less arguments, there would have been less disagreements and misunderstanding and turmoil, but, but that would have been partiality. That would have been People saying, okay, people like me is the valuable people. The, that's who I'm going to spend my time with. The church is called to be the place where there's no partiality in relationships. So, you know, it, it must be true of our relationships with one another, you know, the people that are already here. But then it must be true of relationships of those who come into our church body from the outside as well. And, and I, think, I think a great way to fight uh, partiality, the temptation to show partiality, is to build a relationship with someone that we maybe normally wouldn't 
because of some kind of outward judgment. I, I think as we do that, we're, we're much more likely to love the person as our neighbor and show them mercy. Right? It, it, it's just, just so much easier to, to live in that way when you know a person than when you just assume something about a person. And, and, and you know, we're, we're called to show love and mercy to strangers as well. It's not like, well, only the people that you know you have to show love and mercy to. It's everybody. But it becomes, I think, more likely, and it's maybe, maybe we're, that's more our default when we get to know a person, build that relationship with them. So, so what James says to the church then, and what he says to us today, is that partiality doesn't have a place in the lives of believers. Maybe that's how the world functions. Let me take out the maybe. That is how the world functions. But it's not meant to be how, how the church functions. It doesn't have any place among his people. So let's stand together, and I think we can do two things. I think we can ask God for wisdom to discern within ourselves. Is there anywhere where this is, is creeping in, or, or uh, maybe it's already here, maybe it's creeping in. God, reveal those, those situations to me, and then we can ask God for the strength and mercy that we need to cast that off and, and to truly love our neighbor as ourself, which would be the epitome of not showing partiality. So let's come to God in prayer. Father, we do, we do have to thank you that you are not partial toward us, and it's so good for us because we have nothing to offer you. The mercy that you've shown to us is incredible, and we're thankful for it. God, would you, would you help us to not just receive that, but to live in it, and to live out of it? God, shine the light on our hearts. If, if there's any, any place where we might have this kind of tendency to be partial toward a certain, uh, uh, toward describing a person in a certain way or a, a certain value system given to us by the world around us, whatever it is, God, would you, would you reveal that to us? Would you give us your eyes and your ears for each person that we, that we come into contact with? And give us the strength, God. We, we, we need you to transform us that we might live this out in our lives. May, uh, may our church here specifically be a place that is attractive because of those kinds of relationships where there's not partiality shown. May it accurately reflect your love for us, the relationship you have with us. God, we know that's a very high calling, but it's a privilege as well. So would you help us in that? We, we admit that we are weak before you, and we need your strength and your discernment in this. God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, and your mercy. Thank you that you've showered that upon us. And it's because of that that we worship you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.